Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. Creative artists are often engaged with social movements. In addition to their works inspiring social change, today we'll hear from Atlanta artist Fabian Williams, who paints murals depicting civil rights heroes. Themes of heroism are found in many works by Beethoven, himself a product of revolutionary times that informed his belief in the unity of all humankind. More than two centuries, Ludwig van Beethoven has been at the center of Western classical music. His works are known among music aficionados and avid listeners the world over, and his influence and impact have been inescapable. Beethoven was born on December 16th. 1770. So this year, and really most of next, marks the 250th anniversary of his birth. WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart is with us in the first of a series to examine the life and music of this creative genius. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Lois. It is so great to be with you. <clears throat> and it is not quite Beethoven's birthday, as you say, but that should not stop us from having a little Beethoven fest. I think this is kind of our own version of a pregame tailgate picnic. I do agree with you that Beethoven is at the center point of classical music. He has really dominated the scene since his lifetime. And in terms of music history and composition, I think there's music before Beethoven and there's music after Beethoven. And he remains kind of at that pivot point. He changed not only the way music sounded, but also the way that we think about music and composers. Beethoven's popularity has not waned in the 250 years since his birth. He remains among the most programmed composer among orchestras worldwide to this day. In fact, a recent survey of 120 orchestras performing over 4,000 works in the 2019-2020 season alone reveals Beethoven to be the most programmed composer. And most young pianists are trained on a steady diet of Beethoven piano pieces. So, Scott, what is it that makes Beethoven great? Why do we keep coming back to him throughout our lives as listeners? You know, Lois, I was thinking about this question all week and what a week it was. Uh, we were already in this strange various phase of sheltering in place for the COVID-19 pandemic. 
And then we had a series of events nationally and internationally that touched off political and social unrest in support of racial justice all over the world. And I was thinking if we had a time machine and dipped back into Beethoven's world in the late 18th century, you would have witnessed the downfall of centuries-old European monarchies, often in very violent ways, and revolutions in politics and social life and economics that changed really all corners of Europe and really filtered to the rest of the world. Beethoven lived in very turbulent times. Yeah, war-torn Europe. And the American Revolution was already in progress. In 1789, the Bastille was stormed in Paris, which began the French Revolution. The Industrial Revolution was causing a shift of agrarian economies to urban business, and a middle class was emerging, which created a new audience for classical music. Yes, for sure. It is fascinating that Beethoven, in his 56 years of life, was in the middle of all of this upheaval. So I think that Beethoven remains relevant in our current time, first of all, because of his music, which was very revolutionary at the time, speaks to our passions, our hots and our colds, our ups and our downs. His personal story and his public life were kind of a story of constant struggle. And it was against this backdrop of revolution and change that he composed some of the most sublime music that we have to listen to. He was able to turn his personal and his life storms into sunshine. Oh, and he also depicted those storms very well, too. Yeah, he did. Beethoven's repertoire is certainly the cornerstone of Western musical study. And it also has a firm footing in popular culture. That's right. And it's kind of a small club, right, of the, the pieces of music that the average person out on the sidewalk knows from the classical repertoire. But Beethoven certainly has his share of music that people can readily identify. There's certainly music from all over music history that is popular for a while and then it kind of fades into history or it's been chosen to be preserved museum style in music schools and conservatories and in concert halls. But Beethoven's music has a, a timelessness about it. Even in 2020, we hear dramatic power and this depth of feeling and a kind of individual stamp of personality that is instantly relatable and I think keeps it in the here and now. The Magnificent Egmont Overture by Beethoven, in that recording with George Sell conducting the Cleveland Orchestra. Scott, music historians often point to Beethoven as the connective tissue between the classical and romantic eras, the transition which occurred at the end of the 18th century and into the 19th. That's right. This was a whirlwind of change from the time of the French Revolution in 1789 through the end of the Napoleonic Wars in about 1815. Europe was in this period of upheaval 
as politics and economics and social systems were turned upside down. And as you mentioned, this middle class kind of emerged in this new economy and they had disposable income. So they were looking for arts and entertainment in order to use some of that disposable income. Beethoven grew up in the midst of all this tumult we've been talking about. Now, he was trained in the elegant classical era music of Franz Josef Haydn and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and he believed strongly in Enlightenment ideals. He was a great enlightened thinker. He believed in democracy. He was an anti-monarchist. And he was deeply affected by the political and social upheaval overtaking Europe in his lifetime. Yeah, it's important to remember, I think, that a lot of our composer heroes did know each other. There is evidence of a meeting between Mozart and Beethoven. We know that Beethoven studied privately with Haydn for a time in Vienna. And we know that in his youth, Beethoven would have been hearing what we then would have called popular music by both Mozart and Haydn. And so this was in his ear. Let's listen to a little bit of Mozart. This is the minuet movement from Mozart's Symphony Number no. 35, back from 1782, which Beethoven would have heard when he was a kid. like music of Mozart, courtly, elegant music from the Symphony Number no. 35 in D, the Minuet Third Movement. We hear the elegance, the panache, and the classical era reserved emotion. I think it's nice to some music side by side, just so we can hear some of the differences. I certainly don't want to suggest that there was no emotion in the classical era. There certainly was, but there was a kind of symmetry and mathematical precision and a kind of um, a, a line that one would not step over. And Beethoven erased that line and vaulted over it. So let's examine some side-by-side -side music. Now this is the minuet movement, which is actually so fast that it became a scherzo. Just about 20 years after that Mozart symphony, this is the third movement of Beethoven's third symphony, the Eroica. You mentioned that it is so fast it became a scherzo rather than a minuet. I, I think there may also have been a statement here of political belief. Um, the minuet was a courtly dance, and I think Beethoven was much more of the people, although it didn't prevent him from turning down commissions from various aristocrats. Yeah, you're right, though. No, no, no. But I think that is a kind of one of those understated ways that he helped move us from the courts to the republics. And, um, you know, he I think well, the, after the Second Symphony, he didn't have any more minuets, right? It was all much faster third movements. 
And it is with the symphony number three, the Eroica, the heroic symphony, that he truly came into his own voice, if you will, as a 19th century composer. You were talking about uh, distancing himself from the courtly and aristocratic ways. I think there's a famous quote where he dismissed a prince saying, there are dozens of princes, but there's only one <laughs> Beethoven. Beethoven did a lot of dismissing. <laughs> <laughs> Not to mention which, in that monumental symphony number three from which we just heard a portion, his Eroica Symphony. He originally intended that to be for Napoleon. He was enthralled with Napoleon as the great liberator of Europe, and this symphony was to have been called Bonaparte until Beethoven found out that Napoleon proclaimed himself emperor of France. And when Beethoven did find out that bit of information, he famously took a knife and ripped through the dedicatory page of his score. He renamed it the heroic. So it is in the character of the heroism that would overthrow tyranny and not dedicated to that guy who so disappointed him. And by the way, don't mess with Beethoven. The, the, the score is still preserved with that hole in the front cover page. So there's evidence that he was very unhappy with this entire situation. And even out of context of the, the entire gigantic Third Symphony, which is longer than any other symphony that had been written up to that point by about twice as much, we're reminded that uh, the, the scherzo, this really fast joke-like movement, the third movement, comes after a really lengthy and somber second movement funeral march in the third symphony. So we can hear these wild galloping rhythms. Um, Beethoven's playing around with the time signature, the meter. Is it in two? Is it in three? We're really not initially sure the first time we hear it. But what we can hear is Beethoven transforming this former lilting court-style minuet into the more modern wild scherzo right in front of us. WABE music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart will get back to our conversation about the life and legacy of Beethoven after a short break. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Let's return to my conversation with WABE music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. We're talking about the music and meaning of Beethoven today. Beethoven was one of the finest piano soloists of his day, and piano works were then a natural outlet for his composition, many of these works, for him to perform in concert or recital himself. He wrote sonatas, variations, and a large output for amateur musicians, many of which are still standard for young pianists today. 
And I think he also, and you can speak as a pianist to this, pushed what he thought amateurs should be capable of. Um, very often he would start with a very simple tune then have a lot more advanced flourishing and variations. And then certainly for pure professional pianists, he sent them running for the hills with some of the difficulty levels of the sonatas and concertos. Again, I think it's helpful to compare the sound of the classical sonata, this time by Franz Joseph Haydn, to that of Beethoven. Here's the opening movement of Haydn's Piano Sonata number 49 in E-flat major from 1789 when Beethoven was 19. listening to Alfred Brendel in that recording of the piano sonata number 49 in E-flat of Franz Josef Haydn, a marvelous example of Haydn's later style with a kind of directness that anticipates Beethoven's handling of thematic material. And Scott, you mentioned the number of works Beethoven wrote perhaps for amateurs or that work so well for music students. As with music of Haydn like that, we just heard some of the greatest pianists of the 20th century, including Alfred Brendel, whom we were listening to a moment ago, come back to those simpler works and included them in their recitals. So to hear Alfred Brendel, or in the 1970s and 80s, hearing the likes of Vladimir Horowitz playing Furlis, or one of the simpler-sounding piano sonatas of Haydn or Beethoven, gives added meaning to the fact that they may sound easier to play, but there's nothing simplistic about the material. Oh, not at all. In fact, there's a great interview with Lang Lang saying, here's how I would have played this when I was five. <laughs> <laughs> and here's how I play it now. And it's really stunning. The notes are the same, the rhythms are the same, but the way it's played is, you know, years and years and years of music making in between those, those two bookmarks. Mm. So we were talking about Alfred Brendel and Haydn. Yeah, and I like your description of how Haydn in his later years was starting to think, kind of teeing up the ball for Beethoven to do ba 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 ba, because we get these little bite-sized bits of melody, and then he turns them around in an ingenious way, and they, in this case, get answered by a kind of a, a more flowing reply. So we're going to fast forward to Beethoven and the Waldstein Sonata. This is the third mm. movement. And we're going to hear how Beethoven's virtuosity and really advanced technique has, again, pushed this idea of the piano sonata, the, the solo piano piece, forward into this very masterful arena. Thank you. 
pianist Maurizio Pollini in that recording of the final movement from Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. 21. It's known as the Waldstein Sonata for the Count Waldstein, who was a patron of the composer. <laughs> Many That's a true. piano student has cried technical difficulties for the extreme demands of that piece, but it is one of the glorious touchstones of the piano repertoire. I think it was the first piece of Beethoven's that I studied at Indiana, and um, Mary Wennerstrom, you may remember her, Oh yes. started class one day by playing it, and uh, it was one of those life-changing moments that where I, th I was not in academia. I was kind of in this other musical world, and it was a very, very memorable time. And part of the theme of that class was that Beethoven was right there at the right time, at the right place, in a world that needed a hero, and he was a hero. And it's arguable that he not only kind of dragged classical music into the Romantic era, so from the the late 18th century into the mid-19th century, but he also pulled music into the modern age. There were pieces that he wrote at the end of his life that today still sound pretty fresh and new. These pieces, including the, the late string quartets, baffled players. They could not play it. They said it's way too hard. And there were maybe a few unminced words from critics, including composer Louis Spohr, who called these late quartets indecipherable, uncorrected horrors. And <laughs> there's some other um, editorial remarks made about some of Beethoven's later music. But today, in 2020, we kind of hear these as recently composed, including this little drop into the Grosse Fuga from Opus 133, very late in Beethoven's life. three minutes into the Grosse Fuga, the, the Grand Fugue, which originally was supposed to be the end of a string quartet, and Beethoven's publisher convinced him that maybe it would be better if this were just its own little piece, because it was so hard for anyone to play or listen to at the time. Composer Igor Stravinsky, of course, in the early 20th century, suggested that this was an absolutely contemporary piece of music that will be contemporary forever. So a reminder that Beethoven was not only of his time, but he certainly was of the future. I like that you brought up Stravinsky, Scott, because I was once talking with Robert Spanner, and we were discussing the Rite of Spring and talking mm -hmm. about how after the Rite of Spring, which Stravinsky wrote in 1913, I believe. Nothing else that followed could be the same. That somehow there was an echo of that, that that's how much of a turning point, a radical turning point there was in 20th century music. Similarly, Beethoven is that to the 19th century. I agree. There, there was something about the 
life of Beethoven that serves as a place where classes restart. <laughs> so you study up to Beethoven and you study Beethoven and then you study stuff after Beethoven. And then in 20th century classes, in, in fact, there's even the, the term 20th century music, which is not a super helpful term, but it basically describes music that was written after the Rite of Spring, when we get all the things that end in ism, like expressionism and neo-romanticism or neoclassicism or avant-gardism or, you know, all of those. And um, I think those are two of the biggest bookmarks that we have in music history. Now, if Beethoven had just been your run-of-the-mill 19th century or Romantic-era composer, the music that changed the path of music history would still have been enough for us to immortalize him. But the fact that he also had such a compelling personal story played into the sensibilities of the romantics that made him such a perfect hero of the era. It is astonishing that all of these musical achievements of his were made in spite of personal adversity. His life and his music both are examples of triumph over adversity. Yeah, his music kind of became a template for this. And we had not been thinking of music exactly in these terms prior to this time. Maybe we understood music as a storytelling device. And I think some of the great masters understood that they could manipulate themes and motifs and keys and times and kind of the structure of different symphonic movements to kind of lay out a journey that we had in a kind of a very abstract aural way. But now Beethoven is starting to demonstrate that life is music and music is life and my life is very difficult and my music is very difficult and we're going to come up with these musical sonic ideas to demonstrate how we try to overcome adversity. Beethoven's personal story is kind of heartbreaking. We romanticize him, we imagine him as this kind of towering figure in music history, but if we could kind of go back to his actual day-to-day -day existence, we know that he was an abused child by an alcoholic father who wanted him to be very Mozart-like uh, and uh, kind of uh, trot him out in front of crowds as a child prodigy. Beethoven endured family and relationship strife throughout his adult years. He never found a life partner. He had numerous romances with women way above his class station, which he didn't see a problem with, but a lot of people did, <laughs> and was socially awkward to say the least. He wasn't polite, he was often unkempt and dirty, and in spite of this kind of problematic personal backdrop, he became a kind of rock star as a pianist and as a composer early in his life. Listeners became increasingly uncomfortable trying to understand his later works, as we've talked about, and the story that most people know, most devastatingly, is that Beethoven began to notice that his hearing was going in his 20s, around 1804. And by the time he was 44 or 45, he was completely deaf. And we have many stories and anecdotes from his friends and colleagues about his deafness. We even have conversation books that he used to keep so that friends and he could write to each other if he could not understand what they were saying. And it really is the most tragic, worst, most possible fate for someone whose life is all about hearing. Yes. And just as he experienced in his own life, the idea of overcoming hardship became this common theme in much of Beethoven's music, or it's interpreted that way. He began to manipulate musical ideas like melody, harmony, rhythms, and formal structure to tell stories. 
And the symphony number five, which dates from the year 1808, has become the embodiment of that idea, overcoming personal conflict through willpower, (laughs) culminating in this magnificent final movement. Yes, and this was not program music, the way that later Romantic composers used to correlate musical ideas to real-life events, like Hector Berlioz in Symphonie Fantastique, but it was a little more metaphorical, and probably the best-known work, as you say, takes us on this journey of dark to light in the symphony number five which traces this narrative arc over four movements the third and the fourth are connected that lead us from a kind of despair and stark drama at the opening to a victorious ending the famous opening is still jarring today every time i hear it i think whoa we are in for something here And that certainly would have knocked the socks off Luther's in 1808. The da-da-da-dam rhythm is repeated over a hundred times in the first movement alone. And even as this movement follows a kind of traditional formal design, it is so dark and dramatic that it stands out as being different from anything that came before it. The slower second movement has two really lovely themes that get varied back and forth. Here's the first one that we hear in the violas and the cellos. A little bit later in the second movement, we hear a rhythm, da-da-da-dum, similar to the first movement, fate knocking on the door rhythm underneath. So Beethoven starts to recycle. Movement three begins with a murky figure, and then the main theme hits us with the horns. You can hear very distinctly now the persistence of the da-da-da-dum rhythm, even though the time signature, the meter here, is very different. There's a miraculous transition or a bridge from the third movement to the fourth, and this is where Beethoven switches us from really dark and sad, gloomy C minor to bright and cheery C major, dark to light, and then explodes into this glorious fourth movement with a very triumphant theme. How many times have we heard this symphony? many times and it's still like the first time it is so triumphant and cleansing when we get to that point we feel like Beethoven did win at the end and there are even more appearances of the da-da-da-dum rhythmic motif which becomes a very clever way of unifying the entire four movements of the symphony. I think it's also worth noting, speaking of winds, that this is one of the first appearances of trombones in a symphony. Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5 is certainly one of the most important, most influential compositions in the history of Western music. It's become a standard by which other symphonies are measured. And then, of course, there is also his symphony number nine.
seems unfair to just kind of give a glancing blow to the fifth and the ninth symphonies of Beethoven, but we'll definitely come back and talk more about them. Beethoven's magnum opus, his most important and grandest composition, the ninth symphony, kind of broke broke symphonies <laughs> it is so grand in scale about 75 minutes long the the fourth movement itself is about 25 minutes and this was the first symphony to include a full chorus and a set of soloists and the message in schiller's poem the ode to joy is very timely in 2020 let us embrace freedom and brotherhood and the message to future composers was also clear. First of all, good luck topping this one. <laughs> and also, don't try to write more than nine symphonies because you will probably die if you try to do that, which several composers actually found out after they tried to write more than nine symphonies. Right, but musicians are never superstitious. <laughs> never. So, Lois, you asked me at the top of the segment what makes Beethoven so great. Why do we keep coming back to him 200 years later? Well, I think there's something really special about this music that's never lost its edge. It has impressed listeners since the first time it was played, and it remains central to our culture today. It is certainly a task to try to summarize Beethoven in one sitting, so I hope we'll have a chance to dive into more of some of this amazing music soon. But happy early 250th birthday to Ludwig van Beethoven. Oh, and it is one worth celebrating for all year throughout the year. Scott Stewart, what a fine introduction you have provided us. Yes, we will most definitely have much more Beethoven together and maybe even an entire segment devoted to the ninth. Thank you so very much. Thanks, Lois. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE music contributor and host of Strike Up the Band. He is on the music faculty at the Westminster School's Lucky Students and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. Have you heard an interview on City Lights that you would like to share with a friend or listen to again? WABE.org slash City Lights is the place to find today's interview, as well as segments from previous shows. We invite you to search, stream, and share your favorite show at WABE.org slash City Lights. And thanks for listening. In 2017, the Atlanta artist Fabian Williams painted a mural of former San Francisco 49ers quarterback and civil rights activist Colin Kaepernick in an Atlanta Falcons uniform. On the eve of the 2019 Super Bowl, the mural was destroyed when the building was demolished. In response, Williams mobilized a group of mural artists and volunteers to paint at least eight new Colin Kaepernick murals. When I spoke with Fabian Williams in 2017, he began describing the neighborhoods where he likes to create artwork. Cabbage Town is a great example of what happens when artists take the initiative and, you know, beautify the area mm -hmm. that they live in. So taking a cue from Peter Ferrari's uh, Fort Warrior, uh, I started going to the West End and putting up murals where I saw dilapidated buildings. Um since there's no public arts ordinance anymore and I don't have to go and necessarily apply to, you know, the powers that be in order to do things that I feel like, you know, people that look like me need to see. Mm -hmm. So I just went, you know, in between jobs that I, I'm getting paid for, I would take the supplies left over and I would go do a piece. So 
I'm a news junkie, admittedly, so I, I just I consume media Only all through the time. W-A-B-E. Right. Almost totally. Like, I say 91%. Okay. Uh, but the other part, CNN. You know, <laughs> um, so I just, uh, you know, I, I, I react to things that are in the 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 zeitgeist. And I, I put things up that I feel like we, that, that black people would be pr- proud of, you know. Or some white people, or Atlantans, you know. <laughs> but but the, but the we reason can why share in the pride. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, Thank but, you. but the reason why I go in, in, into the West End because like I feel like most of the area is bleak. Yes. You know what I mean. And I I remember growing up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. You know, even though I didn't grow up in a city per se, I do remember not seeing artwork. Well, your mural of Colin Kaepernick garnered some attention. SB Nation wrote about it. Actor Issa Rae posted about it on her Instagram. What connection does Kaepernick have to Atlanta? Uh, well, for you, for, for me, Kaepernick would be a good fit to Atlanta because of our civil rights legacy. Um, so, someone get him a job. I'm like, you know. If you don't want him in other cities, he's he's a good fit just simply because of what this city represents and what happened here that really affected the world. Like literally the world over is a better place because of what Dr. Martin Luther King did, uh, what Ralph David Abernathy did, you know, uh, Joseph Lowry, all these people that made an impact on our social uh, system, you know, a lot of it happened here. This is the cross section. So what Kaepernick is doing, standing up for police brutality, uh, lines up with the mission that comes from Atlanta. Um, I, w- I would like to make the city uh, a visual reminder of that. That and, and like to me, he's just like another piece that works with it. You know what I mean? Like it, it just fits, in my opinion. Your mural of Hosea Williams at Studio Plex put him in sort of an action hero pose. And what are you hoping to do by playing with how you portray these civil rights icons? Well, they're just like, I like to look at them as like spiritual guides. And like in my world, in my vision, spirits are made of the cosmos and and uh, like galactic bodies you know like to me that's where like the power the essence of life is and and also wisdom and I feel like when they were here they were guiding us um through some sort of like divine purpose uh Hosea Williams was a handful you know he was larger (laughs) than life he was a soldier and I wanted to portray him in a way that he looked almost uh you know, like a god, and and you have Congressman John Lewis as a very young man. Yes, uh, yeah. It, well, what I'm doing also is taking the civil rights leaders like John Lewis and giving them contemporary haircuts because what I'm trying to tell these people that are younger than me, that these millennials, that you are them and they are you. Because what's the most important aspect of being surrounded by art? Right. Uh, it's to think critically. When you do not expect to learn is when you learn. Like, you know, it's almost like getting caught in an accident. You know? And if you beautify more neighborhoods, then people's attitudes will change. Like like, you know, if you walk out the, the house and you see an image of that's like yourself, you know, raised above you, larger than life, it gives you something to look up to, something to, to aspire to. And I feel like we all need that. We don't just need it in Cabbage Town. We need it everywhere all over the city. And I believe that once that starts that starts to happen, you'll see a shift in everything from crime to, you know, personal interaction. You know, like people will just be a lot happier. Dignity. We need dignity. Like everybody needs dignity. And we need to start giving it in like, you know, truckloads. It needs to be everywhere. Atlanta artist Fabian Williams speaking with me in 2017. You've been listening to City Lights, a celebration of the arts and the ways in which we express ourselves creatively. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m., 
to hear about Atlanta's Out on Film Festival. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. City Lights is now a podcast. Listen, if you will, check it out wherever you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.